I've got to start with a little bit of a disclaimer um, because um, I ha- can personally testify that being in the seats that you're sitting right now is a bit of a dangerous place. Uh, my wife and I came to this conference for about 10 years in a row during my med school and residency years. Um, the first year we missed was because we were on a vision trip to the country that we now serve in, in North Africa. And so um, I heard over those years uh, men like David Thompson um, tell me that God's word says that the doctor must die. Um, I heard Charles, Charles Fielding tell me that God's word says that you have to be a disciple first and a doctor maybe. Uh, I heard uh, Rick Donlin tell me to live, uh, to die, and to die to live. And I heard Nathan Cook tell me that God's word says that if you're not, if your life isn't an assault on the very gates of hell, then you're not doing something right. And so I heard these people over the years speak, and, and God used them in a powerful way to move in our lives. And so I don't presume to fill these men's shoes today, uh, but what I do want to do is stand on their shoulders a little bit, open the word of God with you, and... Um, See where this, see where the Holy Spirit takes us, okay? Um, and of course, anytime you do that with an open heart, that's a dangerous place for you to be. And so if God takes hold of you this hour or this weekend and, uh, starts having you do amazing, uh, seemingly crazy things to your friends and family, uh, don't blame me, okay? Um, I started off about 20 years ago and I first heard of medical missions about nine months or a year after I was saved. And um, I don't remember who, who mentioned it to me or, or even what was said, but I just remember knowing that's what I had to do with my life. Um, and so over the years since then, over the last 20 years, obviously that's changed in my understanding of that. Um, and I want to share a little bit of that with you today. Along the way, that took my wife and I to the inner city of Memphis. Uh, we worked for three years in the inner city. And then we were sent out from Memphis um, with a team uh, to North Africa where we serve now. And what we do there uh, is in one of the poorest countries on the earth, one of the least developed. And we work among a cluster of 15 uh, ethnic groups, uh, each of which have zero disciples. And we're working to catalyze movements of disciples among those groups through health strategies. But all of us are searching for how to make our life count for the kingdom, right? Um, Steve Smith uh, was a movement, uh, he's a movement trainer. He worked for many years in Asia with his wife and children. And he uh, summed it up nicely, I think, in a way that I hadn't quite heard before. He said, ask not what is God's will for my life, rather ask what is God's will? What is his purpose in this generation? And how can my life best contribute to it? And so I want to answer that question today, hopefully, or at least start you thinking about the answer, by looking at some of the paradoxes in the kingdom of God. And we could name off a whole list of them. You know, many who are first will be last. Uh, Many who are called, but few are chosen. Uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it can bear no fruit. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I could go on and on. You've heard these. We've we've worked to figure these out. We've worked to live these. Um, But there are two paradoxes that we find in God's kingdom and in God's word that... um, that have to do with how God deals with humanity, how he deals with us. Along with being righteously and zealously jealous for his own glory, there are two great paradoxes in how God deals with mankind. One is that although he is infinitely powerful, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, he fiercely and persistently opposes injustice and poverty 
and fights for the powerless. So that's one. The other is that although he is one, he is perfect, he is holy, he doesn't change. He persistently proclaims his love for and pursues the vast diversity of people on this earth in all our many shapes and forms and, and differences. And what I want to show you today is how these two paradoxes, they're actually very closely intertwined. And the way that they are intertwined should drive how we as disciples do his work. Okay, so hang with me here. Um, I really believe that scripture should drive the way that we do things, uh, both as people, as health workers as well. And so what I want to do is delve into scripture to get a little bit closer view of God's perspective of how we do what we do and where humanity is heading. Getting God's perspective into our mind is what we call vision. Making his concerns our concerns, making his will our will, making his plans our plans. Without that will and those plans, we come up with all kinds of other things that are good, uh, but may make us busy, make us feel good, may look good to other people. But we may miss a huge part of what God wants for our lives and what he wants to do through the church. Now, you in this room probably don't need me to describe to you the plight of the poor overseas. Uh, many of you have served them for years in Jesus' name, and, and that's why we're all here, a big part of why we're all here. And maybe you've held that dying baby in your arms, and maybe you've looked into the eyes of someone whom you know if they had just been in another country, they would be fine right now. But because they were born where they are, they're dying, or their child is dying. And maybe you've seen her little girl die in front of you from meningitis like we did in our country. Um, her arms and legs contorted in an awful way from the insult that was taking her life in her brain. And maybe you've seen the way that children who haven't really eaten much in a while just devour whatever you give them. And maybe you've seen the way a beggar with no legs or a paraplegic beggar will, will have plastic flip-flops on his hands so that when he walks on the sandy streets he doesn't ruin his hands as well. You in this crowd don't, mean it's, don't need me to tell you that the spirit of the living God demotes a massive amount of scripture to this, to his heart for the poor. Deuteronomy 10, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Matthew 25 is one we all know. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And as you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Clearly, Jesus wants us serving the poor and fighting injustice in our world. And so that's what we do. But Jesus says something that could be a little bit discouraging if we don't have the right perspective, if we don't have his perspective on these things. He said in, in, with his disciples when Mary Magdalene came to, to wash his feet with her tears, he said, you always have the poor with you, but you, always, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Really, Jesus? The poor you always have with you? Can he possibly mean that all of our efforts, our hospitals, our training programs, our community health initiatives, our food distribution programs, our HIV initiatives cannot completely stop poverty and illness? That there's never an end to the sick, the malnourished, the oppressed? Is this some sort of Sisyphean task that he's given us? You remember Sisyphus from your high school mythology? He was the king of ancient Corinth who was sentenced by the gods to roll a boulder up a hill every day, only to have it roll down back over again and again. Is that the kind of thing we're up against here? Is this what Jesus has asked us to do? 
Some of us spend our lives stamping out disease and poverty in the name of Christ. We devote millions upon millions of dollars to the cause. We've left everything to bring health to those who would never us have it. Jesus, we in this room are your people. You have empowered us with your spirit. You have burdened us with your heart for the fatherless, the foreigner, and the widow. You've broken our hearts by showing us the sick, the destitute, the dying. We know your heart for the poor. We have been obedient to your call to serve them. We cry out to the Psalms to him. How long, O Lord? How long will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. How long will the wicked, how long will the wicked exult? Why do you let these diseases rampage on? Why are you letting these children succumb to malnutrition? Why are you continuing to allow evil to exploit these women and children? God, we will be faithful in this room to serve the least of these. We do it for your glory. We do it to obey you. We do it because it's the right thing to do. But God, how long will all this go on? We've all asked ourselves and we've asked God these questions. Well, as with so many of our heady, difficult questions, our loving Father has an answer if we have ears to hear it. Now, yes, Jesus' purpose in saying we would always have the poor with us was not necessarily a a directive for our mission strategy. I grant that. But that's what he said in rebuking his disciples for for rebuking Mary's sacrifice. He also said after that that persecutions would continue until the end and the love of many would grow cold. So if we pay attention to what Jesus is saying, uh, we should expect that despite our best efforts, things will get worse, not better. Isn't that what the poor you always have with you means? That the problem of poverty and all the problems that come with it are always with us? Now, I've seen the statistics. I've watched the TED Talks. I love watching TED Talks. And I've seen the, the, the things that, that uh, well-learned, well-researched people are saying about poverty. That it's declining, that we're, we're within, within a decade of it ending worldwide. But when you read between the lines and you start to look at the statistics, it's not, it's not quite true. And you and I know that when we look into the eyes of these people here and abroad. We know it's not, it's just something about that doesn't ring true. And Jesus confirming that with his word only, only solidifies it. And of course, we're really good at what we do. We don't like that. We don't like the fact that it's not going to end anytime soon. I'm a board certified general surgeon. I'm good at saving lives. That's my ego talking, right? We all have that ego within us. We want to stop this. But there's a twist to this. So don't walk out now. Don't leave yet. God loves a plot twist. He loves a cliffhanger. He loves to turn things around. Think of Abraham and Sarah when they couldn't have children. Think of the Exodus right at the verge, right on the beach, the Red Sea. Think of the resurrection. Just when you think things can't get any worse, that's often when God steps in in an amazing way because he gets the glory that way, right? In fact, there's another paradox at work here. The paradox of God's passion for the poor. That the God who spoke the universe into being, the God who commands armies of angels, the God who causes the rise and fall of kings, the same God loves every poor human on earth. He's not forgotten their plight. He hates injustice, and he's not forgotten his promises to bring justice to the earth. And he expects us to do the same, to have that same mindset. And he has a plan to end global poverty. But it might not be quite what you expect. You see, despite what Jesus said about this age and this time that we'll always have the poor with us, 
God promised in many other places that poverty will end. Even though persecutions and lawlessness and hatred will increase, there are many prophecies over and over in the Old and New Testament of a coming age, after the end of this age, when poverty and sickness and injustice will be no more. I'll have a handout at the end when you, when you leave with lots of these verses, so don't try to scramble to write them all down right now. Um, but I want to read a few to you just to give you a taste of what I'm talking about, what God is talking about. He says, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 11, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. It's the famous one. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Isaiah 33, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So when will this be? When will God fulfill his plan to end global poverty? Do we have any indication of when God will relent and stop this chaos? And do we have any role to play in this? What's our role? Well, Jesus did brief his disciples on what to expect before the end of this age, recorded in Matthew 24 and the other synoptic gospels. And deep in that first passage in Matthew 24:14, we find a most startling statement. Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus seems to be saying that we can know at least one of the prerequisites to the end of this age, that the gospel will first be taken to every nation on earth. This is amazing, that we have some indication even of, of when it might happen. Now, you may know that the word translated as nations here is not like our concept of a political state like Germany or Peru. It's, it's the Greek word ethne, which has more the, the connotation of an ethno-linguistic group, more like we would think of the Navajo Nation or the Iroquois Nation, a group of people who share common characteristics. And Jesus specifically makes the point here to say that the gospel reaching every ethnic group will precede the coming of the end, meaning the end of this age. This is one of the greatest paradoxes of the kingdom of God. Although Jesus has told us to care for the poor and work to address these needs, that poverty will never end through any of our efforts. We just have to be honest about that with ourselves. Okay? We can work hard. We can do a, a, an outstanding job of caring for the poor, and we should do that. But we have to be honest and, and realize God's perspective on these things. However, at some point after every ethnic group is reached with the gospel, coinciding with the coming and rule of Christ, poverty will end. Now, we all know Jesus' famous statement in Matthew 24:36, concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And some well-meaning believers use this verse to say that Matthew 24:14 can't mean the end of this age. But we have to keep reading. We have to hear Jesus out. He says, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all the way. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So I see no tension whatsoever between a little reading of Matthew 24:14 
that every nation will be reached with the gospel before the end comes. And Matthew 24, 36, that no one can know the day and hour of his coming. The two are really only tangentially related. The first is a statement and promise of the surety of world evangelism. Jesus saying it will happen. Jesus is, God is not going to leave anybody behind in terms of people groups. And the second is a warning to stay awake spiritually and watching for his return. So even though we have a good idea of what God considers nations to be, these ethnic groups, and we have a rough idea of our progress through the works of some amazing researchers at Joshua Project and peoplegroups.org, we still don't, we, we can't possibly know exactly what's happening around the world like God does. And so we can't know the day or the hour. Now, there are a couple more pieces of evidence to support this idea that I want to share with you. I don't want you to, 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 to go just on those because you don't have to because the Bible's full of them. Matthew 28, 20, right after Jesus gives the Great Commission that we're all very familiar with, he told his disciples, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So he tells them to make disciples in every nation and every ethnic group on earth, and then he makes sure to reassure them that he will be with them. Why? I think it's because he knows that until the end of the age, we're not going to be seeing him very often, right? Unless it's miraculously through a dream or a vision. And so he wants us to continue making disciples in every nation because he knows that once that task is complete, then he will be there with us and we'll see him as the reigning king that he will be. But until that time, we need his reassurance to know that he's with us. One other piece of evidence is Second Peter three eleven through 12. Peter is, is telling his readers um, what to expect. Um, he's reminding them that while God wants everyone to repent, that judgment is coming with a roar. And he asks rhetorically in verse 11 and 12, in light of knowing this, what sort of people should we be? And he says something that's a little bit peculiar. He says we should wait for and hasten the coming day of God. What? Us? Hasten or speed up the day of the Lord? I just don't know any other way that that's possible without a literal reading of Matthew twenty four fourteen, that we can somehow participate by reaching every nation as he's asked us to, to pave the way for the day of the Lord and for the next age. And so this is the paradox of God's passion for the nations, that he's not stopping until every ethnic group on earth, every people group, every nation, as it's often translated, has disciples. God is one. He is perfect. He has no flaws or variation. Yet he pursues every ethnic group with all of our flaws, all of our generational sins, all of our various idolatries. Now why? Why does God want every people group reached with the gospel before he brings about the end of the age? Well, one, there's just massive biblical evidence that it brings him the most glory to have the most diverse kingdom. So if he doesn't have every people group, there's something just not right about that. That means there are ethnic groups that don't bow their knee to him. Revelation 19 and 21 say that we as his church are his bride, and his bride is not complete until someone from every people group comes into the kingdom. Second, God loves every nation. His great love has been pursuing them from the beginning, and he doesn't want to leave any behind for that very reason. There's, also, there's massive biblical evidence for this, and I've got a list of verses in the handout for that as well. But the most compelling reason for me personally is Revelation 5.9. This has been driving my heart for a long time. It's an amazing scene. You may know it. Those in heaven, the creatures and the elders are crying out to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So there are still tribes and ethnic groups today 
in which these ransom people don't know that they were ransomed. Until each of these people and every ethnic group become disciples, the blood of our Lord and Savior goes unfulfilled. So remember in Genesis 4.10, when uh, after Cain had killed Abel, and the Bible says that the voice of Abel's blood was crying out from the ground, God, my brother murdered me, do something. Remember that scene? Well, I believe that Revelation 5.9 implies the same about the blood of Jesus. Just like the blood of Jesus, the blood of Abel was crying out from the ground, the blood of Jesus is crying out from the ground. Father, I bought these people with my blood. Do something. Make my blood count. So this is an incredible travesty. It drives me that the blood spilled by the Holy One, our Lord, our friend, through such agony and suffering goes unfulfilled in these people groups that he promised it was shed for. I want to tell you a parable. When we were in French school, my wife and kids and I, my four kids, uh, we took a trip down to Marseille. It was gorgeous. Uh, we took a ferry ride from the harbor um, out across a little part of the Mediterranean to an island. And um, it was beautiful. It must have been 72 degrees, sunny, not a cloud in the sky. Everything was perfect. Kids were happy. <laughs> nobody was crying. Nobody was complaining. Um, it was just beautiful. I want you to imagine with me um, that the unthinkable happened, though. We were on our way back, and all of a sudden, that perfect day was rocked by a deafening explosion. And the next thing I knew, I was in the water, treading water, trying to make sense of what just happened. And I saw the boat, and I saw a giant hole in the side, and it was, it was lilting sideways. People were screaming. Bodies were bobbing in the water. Children were crying. I could smell the stench of spent explosives. And it occurred to me, there was a suicide bomber on that boat. And I realized what had happened. And I, spun, I started spinning around in the water looking for my wife and kids and crying out to them. Ed! James! May! Elizabeth! I couldn't find them, but all of a sudden I saw, I saw Ed climbing onto the boat. Okay, okay. I started screaming again, James! May! Elizabeth! It was so frightening. And I saw there, my wife has, has May. She's climbing on the side of the boat. Okay. And then I see some, a French man has James on the side of the boat. Okay. Okay. Now what do you suppose I did at that point? Three of my four children are safe and sound in the boat. Um, they're, they're taken care of, at least, at least for the most part, out of harm's way. Do I climb in the boat? Make sure they're well taken care of. No, my sweet Elizabeth is still in the water. She can barely swim. <laughs> I've got to find her. And I want to submit to you that God is far more of a loving father than I am. And he is pursuing every ethnic group on earth, just like I was pursuing my children in that parable, with an incredible passion. And so this, is, I think, is the answer to our burning question. What is God's will? What is his purpose in this generation? I believe that God's purpose in this age is to reach every disciple, every ethnic group with disciples of Jesus Christ. Which means that as his followers, we should be pursuing every ethnic group, no matter how small, no matter how isolated, no matter if they're the littlest, like my Elizabeth, with an incredible passion. Now, hear me, I'm not saying that we should stop caring for the poor. I'm not drawing a, a distinction between the two, okay? I'm saying that we need to see things with a long view the way God does. 
Okay, of course we continue to care for the poor. Of course we continue to show the love of Christ wherever we are. Of course we hate injustice the way that God hates injustice. But we have to make this one great pursuit of our lives the one great pursuit of God. That is every tribe, language, people, and ethnic group have disciples. So if we're going to pursue what God's pursuing, we need to understand where he's working. And that there are still ethnic groups that have no disciples. This map that I'm showing you has uh, ethnic groups that have fewer than 2% disciples. Okay? Um, this, this level of 2% is a level that um, missiologists have developed over the years. I can't find it in my Bible. Uh, the best I can find in my Bible is that he's looking for someone from every tribe. Maybe two or three if you take that passage into, into account. Um, but it gives us a place to start. It gives us something to go on. Because sometimes it's awfully hard to find two or three disciples in a, in a group of 10,000. The other, the other thing that I wish was a little different about this, this map and this strategy is that it, it, if, it ta- if, there are, if there's an ethnic group that is spread out into different countries, it treats each of those uh, ethnic groups in a different country as a completely different ethnic group. So it counts them as different, which is really helpful for finding where the people are. But again, I don't think it's really a biblical distinction. But... I love, I love the map, I love this strategy, um, and it gives us a place to start from. Now, I want to show you a different map, and this is from a study in 2010 from, out of uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary that looks at where are we as a church, we as a global church, sending workers to. And um, the link to this is in the handout too. Um, and you can see that, that we're still sending tens of thousands of workers to North America, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Europe, um, and, and that's good. We should be sending workers everywhere, okay? But let's put these two maps together. I hope that projects okay. You can see that where those ethnic groups are that have no disciples isn't exactly where we're sending people on a whole. Broad brushstrokes, right? Okay, as the church, we're missing something. You can almost see maybe why some of these groups aren't reached at the risk of oversimplifying things, I know. But we're just not sending disciples to them to, to preach the gospel. Of course, these are more difficult areas. They're harder to live in. The enemy has had them in the grips for far longer. But these are the places we have to go. So what are you going to do? Now that you know God's plan for ending global poverty, I mean, what are you personally going to do? How can your life best contribute to God's plan for ending global poverty by reaching the nations? And before you answer that in your heart or start to even think about it, I want you to point out, I want to point out one last uh, paradox today. And that's the paradox of the earthen vessel. God, almighty, infinite, all-knowing Father, has put his Holy Spirit inside of you. Okay? And he's given all the authority on earth to Christ. And what did Christ do with that authority? He gave it to you. Okay? So he knows you. Since the day where you were born, from before you were born, just like a clay jar, you and I are fragile at times, a bit messy and dusty at times, and that we can only really hold so much. I didn't plan that, but that was awesome. He has made you plan A to end global poverty. Okay? And we often have this complex that I'm not the right person for that. I'm not quite cut out for that. I don't know enough. I haven't had enough training. I'm not smart enough. I'm not spiritual enough. The Bible is full of examples 
of people who weren't smart enough, who didn't get it, right? We could, go, we could spend a whole hour listing and going through these examples. Abraham, Gideon, David, most of the, all the apostles, even Paul. You are the right person. And there is no plan B. We as the church are the right person. You are the right person. I'm the right person. Until we realize that, we're going to continue, I believe, to wait for the return of our beloved king. And there will continue to be chaos and poverty on the earth. Uh, Bob Blinko, if you've never heard of him, he and his wife Jan and their team were the first uh, Westerners in with the Kurdish people. They brought the gospel to the Kurdish people and the first to make disciples among them. And Bob said something I think is really fitting for this. He said, those who go anywhere to do anything do not end up doing something that must be done. Okay, we have to think more carefully and do the study and the research. There's a certain place and a certain people group who will not hear the gospel unless you go tell them. So I want to take just a minute or two now and ask Father what your next step should be. It doesn't have to be huge. But just pray with me if you would. Father, what's the next thing you want me to do to become a part of this one great plan that you've had for millennia? Father, we want to move beyond saying that we're open to go anywhere or do anything. We want poverty to end. We want to see Jesus. Show us clearly how we fit into these great passions of yours. And Father, I want to have your heart and your eyes for the world. Help me see and love like you do. What do I need to learn more about? What do I need to commit to? What's next for me, Father? Father, we love you, and we don't want to sit on the sidelines as you, our Father, are doing things in this world. So I, I ask for myself and for each of my brothers and sisters here that you would, would you speak into our hearts this weekend? Would you open our hearts, really open our hearts to put aside our uh, preconceived ideas, to put aside our fears, and move in our hearts, Father? We, we want to be where you're working. We want to do what you're doing. We want to see what you see. So we ask you to come for the rest of this weekend and abide with us and direct our path, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for your attention. Um, we can do questions for, we've got almost 30 minutes. So I'm happy to talk more or you can go somewhere and pray if you want to. Whatever you'd like to do. Anybody have any questions about all that? I know some of that might be the first time to kind of put some of those together. Yeah. She asked, um, how, do we, how do we as a team, how do I balance our time between medical care and disciple making? You know, what's our, what's our kind of breakdown of our time? Um, we are a team of seven adults, um, and about half of us are medical. And um, even, even the medical side of our team... Um, decided a long time ago that we are going to guard our time very, very closely because we want to make it, we want to make sure it continues to be about disciple making and reaching these unreached people groups around us. And so our, really our entire health strategy is based off of that rather than the other way around. So our health strategy, um, I don't want to spend too long on this, but real quickly, our health strategy is um, we've developed a set of health lessons. Um, it's basically uh, community development. So 
We um, do the health lessons in homes on a grassroots level. Many of our people are illiterate, so the lessons reflect that. The lessons are made to be um, understood by and then reproduced by people who are illiterate. And so it's very basic stuff, hand washing, um, the, the importance of clean water, malnutrition. Our first lesson is actually God's view of health. We're in a Muslim uh, environment. Um, along with that, we do Bible story, and we start off with um, Adam, Abraham, Noah, Moses. We go through these Old Testament prophets that... that we and they both know, but that point to Jesus, and then we get to Jesus in the end. And so oftentimes after that, we have some time to do some uh, direct primary care types of things. Um, but we, we did it that way based on lots of different resources we've, we've read in the past. Preach and Heal by Charles Fielding was a huge uh, influence on our strategy because we wanted whatever we do to be something that gets us into homes, gets us in a place where our people are comfortable and gives us a chance to sit and talk about life, talk about their problems, talk about what's going on, and give us a chance to tell stories, give us a chance to tell God's perspective, the way, the way that we feel like Jesus uh, taught people, through stories, through basic questions. And so um, we have kind of almost, in a sense, reverse-engineered our health strategy, looking at we want, we want to see disciples in each of these people groups. How do we work backwards from that and, and improve health along with it? We want to improve their health. And, and just from a humanitarian standpoint, I, I personally believe that I'm, we're making a bigger difference in health by teaching hand washing, teaching some of these things, than I would be doing surgery. I'm a general surgeon, actually, by training. And I've done some surgery in Chad, but um, it's, it's been a while. Um, so, other questions? Yeah. What was the last part? Oh, what's our follow-up strategy and how do we stay in touch with them if, we can't, uh, if, if they don't have means to communicate directly? Um, I don't, I don't want to paint uh, the wrong picture. We've, we've, been, we've just ended our first term, so we've uh, ended up almost two years of language study, two and a half years of language study. We've had about six months of enacting this strategy. So thus far, it's just going back to the same people. Um, the main village that we've been working with is about a 20-minute drive from our house. It's about a 45-minute walk. And so we would drive to their village or they would walk to our house. Um, so very basic. And, and this is a very contextualized thing that we're doing. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to maybe do this in a place with a more developed healthcare system, but our healthcare system is very, very low on the, on the development spectrum. So, yes, ma'am. How do we deal with people asking us for a handout of money, money specifically? Yeah, it's a constant, it's a constant thing because, no, you know, no matter kind of what level we live at, we're going to be at a higher level than most of the people we're around. Um, and so we, we do various things. We, um, sometimes we'll consider it and pray about it, and it depends on what it is. In general, we're not, we're not quick to do it. It's a very thought-out and measured response because we don't want to build dependence um, even, even some of the health interventions that we're doing, you know, require using soap, require some empty water bottles to do solar water disinfection. Um, and so if, if they really don't have enough to even buy a bar of soap, we, we're giving them a bar of soap to get them started and hopefully help them see that this makes a difference. So 
I would say, very measured. So we sometimes do gifts. Their culture gives gifts pretty regularly as a part of their relationships. And so we're, we're, we're trying to navigate that. But, yeah, we're being very careful with it because um, we, we, we are at such a different economic level than they are, even though we live simply there. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I, I really believe in this parable that I that I told that that God is pursuing these people groups, and He is just like just like He's making a way to reach them. He, he's often making a way to disciple other people groups and the other the other that are, that have been more evangelized. And the other piece of that is that the, the way I see Jesus doing discipleship in, in the Gospels, it's, it's one-on-one, it's directly working together with a younger believer or a less experienced disciple to do God's work in his community, basically. And so we have, I mean, I, I've grown up in it, I've been a part of it for, for many years before I kind of came to some of this understanding we in the Western Church have often um, made discipleship more about knowledge, more about gaining knowledge, um, kind of learning, learning facts, learning stuff, and not less about going and doing kingdom work. Does that make sense? So not always, again, broad generalization, but um, that has, I believe that has created um, this kind of void that we feel like, boy, we still need... We really need to go uh, have this uh, training program because for years, when those other groups were reached with the gospel, the discipleship wasn't, we, we, did, we did our best, right? But for whatever reason, the discipleship was lacking, and so now they can't, they can't feed on their own. Does that make sense? So they can't, they have trouble, they, they feel like they still need us, and we've, we've, we've not handled some of these questions of money and questions of, of who's going to be the teacher we haven't maybe handled those carefully enough because they're, they're still feeling dependent on us as outsiders. Again, broad generalization. I'm not blaming anyone. or It's just, it's just what I, as a very young person to the field, are, have seen. Um, and so, you know, I, I think those, those who are willing to go to completely unreached people sh- groups should do it. Somebody else is going to be willing, I think, to go and disciple people if, if they need discipling. Now that's, I guess that's kind of the apostolic bent in me to kind of go go to the hardest place. But that's that's what I see. That's what I see the the apostles doing. That's what I see Paul doing certainly, um, all through Acts, and the people that he sent out from his band. Does that answer your question? Maybe not satisfactorily, but anybody else? We've got about 15 minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So she's asking, correct me if I don't miss, if I misquote you, um, what, it, what have we seen in terms of how best to handle this trend of the prosperity gospel sweeping across uh, developing countries? Um, tell me the last part again. Yeah. So how do how do we address poverty without creating a prosperity gospel? Yeah. Um, that's. Yeah. Or, or dealing with people who are already believers who have that mindset already. Um, we. So we've we've only worked with a handful of of people who are already disciples in our culture. We mostly just work with Muslims. And so I'm, I'm probably not the best person to ask, really. Um, I, I can just tell you kind of some things like that, how we've, we're trying to fight that as we, as we you know, share stories, share the gospel. Um, we're, we're trying to make it clear that we're not, we're not there to make you rich. We, we want you to have, be healthy. And, and the thing about how we're trying to do things is that how we're how we're wanting you to be healthy is not us giving you stuff, and it's not, it's not, it rarely has much to do with money. It's about you kind of having some some simple things that you can do to have power and knowledge over your own health. Um, you know, we want to show you when your when your daughter of five has diarrhea, how to make oral rehydration solution from sugar and salt that you can buy for a few francs in the market and make a difference and save your daughter's life. You don't you don't need uh, wealth to do that. You need a few you need a few things that you can probably borrow from a family member if you don't have it. And so we're trying to, as much as possible, enculturate what we're doing, make it fit within their culture, um, and and not bring in our own outside biases. Um, I'm sure we'll bring in something that we don't want to, but we're trying to fight that. We're trying to be really um, just scrutinize every step and scrutinize every piece of what we're doing and um, try to fight against that. So I'm not the best person, though, to ask, just because of our environment, um, how to, how to kind of undo that in the, in the, uh, in the church there. I'm oh, sorry. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Um, it's, it's really been amazing. And, um, if you've never heard of it, there's a book called Wind in the House of Islam that talks about movements all over the world where God is moving among Muslims. In our own context, um, we, we have, um, again, we've, we're, we've finished our first term, so I don't want to make you think I'm a, a, have years and years and years of experience. But what we're seeing is that when we, when we give them these Old Testament stories that they are somewhat familiar with, um, they know Adam, they know uh, Noah, they know Abraham well, they kind of know Moses, they kind of know David, they know Jonah, they know John the Baptist, they know Jesus. But when, we, when we're giving them these stories in this order and showing them how each of them, God gave them signs pointing to this coming sacrifice, it's starting to make things line up for them, and they're, and they're wanting more. So we were we were really seeing people wanting more about three weeks before we came back for home assignment. So um, we're really eager to see what God's doing there. Um, but but that kind of this kind of thing is happening all over the world. That that Muslims are 
are seeing who Jesus really is. They're seeing that the history um, that they've been told about through their religion actually is pointing to him as this fulcrum of history, um, and, they, and they want him. And so um, it's, it's an awesome place to be. It's an awesome thing to be a part of. So, um, yeah, God is doing an amazing thing among Muslims all over the world. Anybody else? Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. Really appreciate it.